0: And welcome to the fourth issue of Nervous State, transmissions on politics and culture in a radio magazine format. My name is Tommy Gavin, and I'll be your host for the next two hours in this iteration of excavatory interrogations of our collective present. As we enter what is, at the time of broadcast at least, the final weeks of the calendar year, moving from 40 plus days of level 5 restrictions back to level three plus or minus, it kind of feels by now like things have changed for good, and it's not really coherent to talk about things eventually going back to normal. But then what even was normal? I personally believe that the illusion of normality was essentially shattered in 2016 with the Brexit referendum in the UK and the election of Donald Trump in the US. And on our own shores, the surreal commemoration of the centenary of Easter Rising 1916, where on any given day of the week, you find men standing on the street corners of Dublin, dressed in full military regalia, reading out the Irish Proclamation of Independence, and the corresponding attempts by the then Fine led government trying to play down the politics of the formative event of the Irish state. Anyway. Each episode, we try to shine a light on the issues and phenomena which we think warrant closer inspection. So over the next two hours, you'll hear about the appalling exploitative conditions faced by English language students in Ireland both before and during the lockdown, an interview profile with underground balladeers, the Mary Wallopers, a look at the Tulka Festival of Visual Art, panel discussion on labour conditions during and after the COVID-19 pandemic, and then finally... An interview with Unquiet Graves director Sean Murray on the legacy of the Northern Ireland Troubles and the sometimes limited historical understanding in the south of the conflict. Kicking it off, though, we return to our regular discussion of journalistic investigations undertaken by the Dublin Inquirer. So, as ever, keep it locked and enjoy the show. joined now by Stephanie Costello, Editor-in-Chief of the Dublin Inquirer, for a roundup of some of the stories that they've been covering of late. Welcome, Stephanie.
1: Hi, Tommy. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad at all. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Thanks for having me back again.
0: The honor and privilege is all mine. Um, (laughs) So uh, what do you have for us?
1: Um, So yeah, I have two stories um, this week that I wanted to look at. I suppose I might start with um, Library Park, if that's all right.
2: Right.
1: Yeah, so um, I will jump right in then, I suppose. So after years of back and forth between Dublin City Council, um, Clewood Housing, which is an approved housing body, and the Department of Housing, um, major redevelopment was secured for Library Park. This is in 2016. So for people who might not know, uh, Library Park is the first traveller-specific accommodation ever built in Ireland. It's been there since around 1967. Um But, you know, the conditions of of Library Park have been, um, you know, they've been notably quite bad, Um, especially, you know, the conditions of those for the people who live in the mobile homes. Um, you know, they've been waiting for um, electricity. They had no water, no sanitation up until about 2011, I believe. So last Saturday, I met a woman who lived on the left hand side in a caravan and she's been there for 27 years. Um, she shares that mobile home with ten other members uh, members of her family. She was promised uh, a new house on the site where her caravan sits. Um, she was basically at the point of picking out new neighbours. She says. Um, when up until maybe almost two weeks ago, uh, Dublin City Council essentially did a U-turn on the redevelopment and announced that the amount of homes being offered on site were going to be essentially halved. So this woman won't get a house where she was promised um, and she may actually have to leave Library Park entirely. So under the development, which was a public Private partnership between Dublin City Council and Cluid Housing. There was 26 new homes that were promised, um, but now Cluid are saying that they can only provide between 10 to 14 homes, um, and this is because essentially Library Park has been identified as a flood risk, uh, which it is. You know, it's in Flood Zone A, um, and Flood Zone A is basically a high probability of flooding. And under the development plan, uh, the Dublin City Council development plan it essentially says, "Do not build in Flood Zone A." unless, you know, they're considered exceptional circumstances. And that's
0: because it's on the Kamek River, is course. correct?
1: Exactly, because it's on the Kamek River. So essentially, development on the left-hand side, which is where the mobile homes are, has been completely ruled out while development on the right-hand side, or redevelopment on the right-hand side, which is where the houses are, and a bit further up where they'll build houses, is still okay to go ahead. So, I mean, I suppose the question there was, you know, what is exceptional circumstances and how do you define exceptional circumstances, right? So, you know, when asked, Dublin City Council essentially said that it was up to them to define what exceptional circumstances meant. Their reasoning was essentially that because the right-hand side had houses on it um, already, um, and it had planning permission before. Um, it would be difficult to object to the refurbishment of these houses and you know difficult to object to the building of more houses further on down. but essentially because on the left hand side, it's just caravans and you know a few sanitation units because there's nothing built there. They essentially think that um, nothing nothing should be built there. What's interesting, though, is that a um, flood risk assessment that was carried out by an engineering firm called DBFL, essentially, they said that development is actually okay to happen on the whole of Library Park. They said that the site passed what's known as a justification test. I'm sorry if this is really wordy and nerdy. I I spent days in flood reports the last like week and a half. But essentially, it passed what's known as a justification test. And essentially, the engineers said that they can mitigate all of the flood risk. And also, um, in fact, once they, you know, rebuild and um, make all the flooding infrastructure, it'll actually reduce the flood risk. So um, this is what a lot of councillors are saying. You know, Sophie Nicolau, Green Party councillor, Hazel De Nortu and People Before Profit, um, Anthony Flynn, uh, who's an independent, they all live in the area. They're essentially saying that, you know, they're contesting this saying the engineers say it's fine why are DCC flooding departments saying it's not okay to go ahead? Um, So, yeah, it's a little bit uh, complicated, I guess. It's just something that, you know, we're going to need to keep our eye on. But what's essentially going to happen is that these people who've been living in mobile homes, some for almost 30 years, are going to be expected to leave Library Park by the end of next year. Um, Whether or not they'll be able to come back is unknown, but potentially fair to say that it's highly unlikely you know Dublin City Council and Cluid said that the travellers will be given priority on a housing list um or they're going to engage with them to see where they want to go but a lot of travellers and the people that I spoke with don't want to go anywhere else except traveller specific accommodation and I don't know if your listeners know but you know there hasn't been any traveller specific accommodation built in a very long time and there's hardly any in, in in Dublin or in in Ireland in general so it's really leaving these travellers um in all up in the air essentially and a lot of them just don't know what's going to happen and you know the woman I spoke to and her family they feel like extremely betrayed essentially
0: and to say that they're, they'll be given priority is kind of saying the plan is that they'll make a plan but they're not being offered any alternative accommodation
1: no, not as of yet. As of yet, there's absolutely no idea what's going to happen. I believe I was told that the travelers, like the families, are being taken one by one into consultation with Cluid and DCC. And essentially, they're being asked, do you want to stay here? Do you want to go somewhere else? If so, where? And I think the hope is that enough of the families will say that they want to move off site. Mm. So essentially, they can accommodate the travelers on the left hand side who won't you know, get the house that they were promised, but it's unlikely whether that will happen.
0: And the woman you were speaking to who had been waiting for 20 years, what what had she yeah. been waiting for?
1: So she'd been waiting for 27 years. She was waiting for a permanent house. She moved, she's she's living in a caravan at the moment with 10 other people. And essentially, it, this has been going on for years and years and years and years. Um, Hold on, one more year, two more years, three more years. Um, houses are going to be built. You're going to get a permanent home. So that's what she's waiting for. They said that we're going to build you a house on this the side of your caravan, but it's just not going to happen now.
0: And you write that the the plans included um, 26 homes, half of which were for people who were in these mobile homes. And yeah. centre, landscape play area, and refurbishment. So that was, 20, that was 2016, and you know you write that she, yeah. she was offered yeah. that and happy to accept. Um, yeah. So why, why, why now and not four years ago if the plans mm-hmm. got this advanced points.
1: Yeah, that's a big, that's a big question. And it's one of the questions that I actually did put to Dublin City Council as well, but I wasn't answered. And um, one of the big questions of this whole story is how did Dublin City Council not know, considering they built Library Park there in the 60s? How didn't they know that this was a flood risk in general? How did it get as far as it got? How did they get all these families' hopes up essentially? And then, um, you know, well, she
0: was two, offered. She
1: was offered. Oh yeah, offered a house. Yeah. No, no, number two is how long did they know? How long did they know that it wasn't going to be going ahead? And from documents and um, timelines that I've seen, internal timelines, they've known for almost a year that that it wouldn't happen on the left hand side. But um, the families in Labrea only found out about a week and a half ago.
0: In keeping with the theme of planning irregularities, um, maybe you want to tell us about uh, the other story you've been covering.
1: Yes, Um, so this is a story by Leisha Naylan um, and she did this two weeks ago Um, and Leisha basically just went down to um, Mare Street Upper, which is around by Sheriff Street, kind of north side of the Docklands, and she met with a resident called Tony McDonnell, whose house is right next door to a new unfinished seven-story development known for now as City Block 2. It's Ronan Group Real Estate is the developer. McDonald was essentially telling Leisha all about his struggle with this particular development and he describes it as a David and Goliath story. Um, I suppose for people who, people might know this, but you know, Johnny Ronan and you know developers in that area have kind of very publicly been testing Dublin City Council's rules and like high rise and heights in that area for quite some time. Residents of Mare Street Upper have seen daylight, privacy, and the enjoyment of their homes essentially all eroded away by these new high rises um, on all four sides of their houses. This area is also, as the residents themselves say, quite overdeveloped. And in a lot of cases, you know, council kind of rules haven't been upheld. The main issue with this development, Antony MacDonald, is the lack of what's known as a step down that the space between McDonald's um, house and um, this development, there's this tiny little, they call it a driveway, but it, if you look at the photo, it doesn't even seem like a driveway. It's just kind of a little laneway as if you're going around to the back of, your, back of your house. And they've essentially used this as what's known as a separation, I suppose, in planning speak. So it's completely gotten them off the hook um, for having to provide any sort of step down. McDonald, who lives there, essentially is saying that he just doesn't understand why the council, Dublin City Council, abandoned the requirement for a buffer for his home. Um, at least if it was gradual, he'd have more daylight. Um, he doesn't have any evening or afternoon sunlight, nothing like that. Um,
0: yeah, it's a perplexing story because, um, you know, the whole point of a strategic development zone, as I understand it, is that it's kind of to deregulate the planning process and kind of facilitate development and remove... Uh, you know, to, to facilitate developers and development. Um, and, but even the rules of the special development zone say you can't have a seven-story building beside someone's calf. You kind of need to like have a three-story and then four-story. And they just yeah. built the seven-story and then like yeah. do
1: something. Yeah, the, the, the SDC role, uh, rules like, very clearly state that you, you can't do that. Yeah, you do need to have your step-down. Um, and I suppose as well, important to point out that... um. They've since changed the planning application. So the ha- the, the seven-story building beside this guy's house um, was supposed to be a apartment block and an apart hotel. Um, but now they have put in permission for a change of use to apartments and co-living. So that's yet to be approved because it was just put in.
0: Yes, perplexing stuff. I suppose we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you, Stephanie Costello, editor of Dublin Courier. You can read these stories on com, and you should also subscribe to Dublin Inquirer because it is a reader-funded newspaper covering important stories like these. Thank you. Moving now into our first feature segment, Every part of the education sector has been drastically affected by the pandemic and the associated restrictions, as has every sector and every part of life for everyone. But for English language students in Ireland, conditions were very bad before and unfortunately are much worse now. Oftentimes um, the schools themselves are implicated in exploitative practices that extend well beyond their walls. Uh, even to the extent, and most people don't know about this or or aware of this, to the extent of misleading prospective students into coming to Ireland in the first place to study English, basically about lying uh, about the opportunities that they'll have while they're here. So in our next 19-minute uh, segment, Lahayla Jones and uh, Shan Coman delve into the predatory treatment of English language students in Ireland, both within the notoriously under-regulated sector, but also more broadly in terms of work and housing. They interview students uh, who tell us about the schools and how they've dealt with the pandemic. And they reveal the housing and labour conditions that they're experiencing and discuss, why is the sector so huge in Ireland? And ultimately ask the question, why is it so poorly regulated and who is benefiting? Here's Lahela.
3: As Ireland has experienced COVID-19 restrictions over the past seven months, there have been many impacts on students. We want to focus on the English language education sector, where students have had problems with the move to online classes, many teachers have been laid off, the Department of Education has recommended a slowdown of the sector, but some schools have continued to enrol students, and some students coming into Ireland to study English have actually been detained at the airport. Other students who have had to leave Ireland because of the pandemic have not been getting refunds of their course fees. According to the Department of Education, in 2018, there were over 121,000 students enrolled in English language programmes in Ireland. Nearly 30,000 of these were adult learners from non-EU countries. According to Marketing English Ireland, or MEI, the value of the sector to the economy was estimated at 880 million euros in 2018, including indirect revenue. The department of Education's strategy for the sector is to increase the value to the irish economy to 960 million by this year which has likely been stymied by the pandemic these economic ambitions might point to a reason why the government has not been adequately restricting or regulating schools that continue to recruit students when conditions in ireland are less than optimal for education i spoke with chilean student maria jose Recabarren about how her learning experience contrasted with what was advertised to her online. When did you decide that you would like to come to Ireland to study English?
4: When I decided that two years ago, maybe one and a half, I think.
3: And what was it about Ireland that made it so attractive for you to study here?
4: First is because I reading a lot about the like student English and the who like is more easier for come you know for come to the or move the country, and I reading people is really friendly and have experience when we talking about the learning the second languages because it's not easier make this um like decision is move that your country, you know, uh, change all your life. My entire life is changed when I decide to come here. My first school is SIA, Cork English Academy. Uh, the first school is not, is not really bad. In Cork, when I when I decide this is school is because many people say that it's a good school, it's like being the top 10 the school, like, you know. And it's okay, but uh, when you, when you looking for, say, in the school don't have more uh, 12 students per class, you know? And this is never happened. No, never. My second school is the real, real problem. Cork English war. And I decide, Went to this school because it's really top, you know, like a little more expensive. But I decide, okay, I need improving my English because that is my idea when I come here. And I say, okay, I need page a little more. Okay. But in this school I had just four week face to face class because unfortunately, COVID is starting. My school was closed and immediately at the my school say no, I give you like some uh, class on video like uh, Skype, and I say okay, but the next week my school is starting with uh give us like a video and on Facebook forty-five minutes one video in Facebook okay and i saw the video and i say and i sent a messenger uh, a email to my school and they say to me Maria Jose you page for this and you have this a video on Facebook
3: results of a survey by the Irish Council of International Students found that only 13% of English language students were satisfied with the online classes that were being provided by their school owing to a range of problems including poor internet connectivity, online classes consisting of 70 people shorter classes, less frequent classes, poorly planned lessons lack of interactivity and students not being in the correct level This is not the first time that serious problems in the English language sector have been highlighted. In 2014, an undercover investigation by the Sunday Times revealed that some schools were selling courses to students that they were then not providing, and falsifying attendance records to allow students to renew their immigration permissions. This led to the closure of many schools, and according to the Department of Justice, over 3,000 students, mainly non-EU, lost their fees. Many teachers also lost their jobs. Students and teachers organised protests in Dublin at the time against the handling of the situation. In response to the scandal in 2015, the Department of Justice introduced reforms to regulate the sector. In the new measures at the time, for a student to access a Stamp 2 permission, they must be enrolled in a school that is on the ILAP, the interim list of Eligible programmes. For a school to be on this list, it must meet certain requirements around examinations, minimum course duration, maximum class size and student attendance. A school can be taken off the ILP at any time, usually following an inspection. The Department of Justice told Nervous State that they are not able to carry out inspections at the moment due to COVID-19. It's important to note that if a school is taken off the ILAP, the immigration permissions of students enrolled in that school are then considered invalid and many students in this situation do not get refunds of their fees.
4: My English is not really good. And I think the school take advance. You can't understand properly everything, you know? i looking for help. Immigration, my ambassador, but the government say that. No, that is private business.
3: Maria Jose was one of many students who were stuck here, caught in limbo, unable to get help from either the government or their schools. It was also the case that students who were already intending to travel to Ireland and had paid for their courses and flights often had little choice but to come anyway, and very likely they imagined it was permissible to travel as schools and airlines were accepting their enrolments and purchases. This was the situation of Estefani Alquinta, a Chilean student who was detained at Dublin Airport in July, and ended up spending over a week in solitary confinement at Mount Joy Prison. A Department of Justice spokesperson said that prospective students seeking to enter the state should wait until in-person tuition has resumed. Failure to do so may result in students being refused permission to enter Ireland and being refused registration. However, this was not announced publicly until October. When the pandemic started, students who had lost their jobs were eligible to apply for the pandemic unemployment payment, although it was not smooth sailing. Many were initially refused because the staff believed that STAMP 2 holders were not entitled to any kind of social welfare. Claudia Galvez, another student from Chile, was part of a Facebook group where students worked together to help each other with visa, immigration and welfare issues and to advocate for better education. Can you tell me which school you chose? Yes,
5: the first one was uh, SEDA College. But it was quite good, actually, the level of English, the the activities planned. It wasn't the same for, for, for everybody Some in, in some other levels the experience wasn't that good. And after the, the the lockdown, I knew that SEDA wasn't a really good helper and assistant for the students that had just arrived to the country. SEDA wasn't answering the concerns and, and, and issues about what was going on, online classes or other or solutions. I paid, it was 2,500 euros. But I've heard that some other courses, it's just the course, not the plane ticket, Mm -hmm. not having this money that the government asks you to have, your account. Uh, But other courses in other schools, they could easily cost, I don't know, 4,000. So add that to cost of living that is quite expensive in, in, in Dublin.
3: How is it like for you to find, um, accommodation or housing?
5: Quite difficult. Quite difficult. There is no other possibility, like cheap possibility of having a room on your own. So you have to share with somebody else. We were four girls. Two in each uh, room and um, all to And we, we realized that if one of us got the, the, the coronavirus, it was like, for sure, the rest of us will, will have it because the conditions and our flat was quite big. I mean, I've seen some flats like really, really tiny for a lot of people.
3: Is there any experience from any of the students that stick out to you, that you remember? Yeah, one of
5: the strongest was whenever the the government had this... It wasn't a a policy, but it was kind of a suggestion, like a strong suggestion, of not evicting people from their homes Within this three months of, of, of lockdown. And we had a case of a Mexican student that was harassed, firstly, threatening him, uh, with, uh, this thing of, uh, you're, we are going to be deported. You're going to be evicted from not just from Ireland, but from Europe. And, uh, because you don't pay the, the rent and he was really scared and at the end we helped him. Uh, we started a campaign of kind of denouncing on uh, social media, like because actually it was related to the school. They had this kind of business of uh, having also uh, housing for, for students and uh, we would push it uh, through the media and we, we, we got actually a, a tiny bit on on a newspaper I guess and at the end they let him to stay there and it, it was but it was really a critical moment really really critical moment. I like be in someone's shoes and, 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 and try to experience that. Having no language is not your mother tongue with almost no money. And you have to decide either to eat or to pay the rent. And and then the eviction and being watered is awful. It's, it's really, really, really awful. So that experience, I, I guess, is the, the most shocking one for sure.
3: Maria also mentions the dire situations of other students who are afraid to speak out.
4: My situation is better than the other student living maybe 20 in one home, don't have internet, don't have anything, you know. And also I am so like a fighting woman. If I don't like something and I go and I with this kind of languages, you know, no, this is no, I pay for that. But for other people, it's it's not like the same, you know, I I know a person don't have food, you know. But uh, and this is like awful and painful. I feel like this school is stolen my money. I working for six months like a cleaning the toilet in the hotel for save money for paid a good school. But what I receive? Nothing. I work in like in really bad situations and doesn't matter because I'm not Europe. I like Ireland, but I, I'm not agree with what is happening now. The government say the school couldn't control other people for the, ne- the next year again. But this is not true. The school continues sell a course, you know. Every day I have a new student, I have a new people here. And where is the government?
3: As someone who has experienced what it's like to study English and is- spoken to so many people who have as well why do you think the government has not made more of an effort to regulate this sector
5: i don't know that much on the subject but i would say the schools of english uh it's it's a business it's like well known it's a business not just the the schools of english per se like itself but also what it generates in terms of cheap labor, like students, most of them do cheap labors uh, like teeny tiny tasks. They don't work professionally because it's just twenty hours per week. And also, it's a way of uh, having another businesses running, like housing. It's a business. I mean, having an apartment not that big, but putting I don't know five, six beds. In a tiny apartment, it's, you, you got a lot of profit, So it's a business and it's a business that at the end with the, uh, taxes, it's, it's convenient for Ireland, let's say. So it's cheap labor, other businesses associated to, uh, the schools that the, 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 the school of language languages. So yeah. It's not just Ireland. I mean, that's the way all the the countries or most of the countries work with migrants. It's quite sad, but that's the reality, what I think, as I said.
3: The ILAP is supposed to be temporary, as its name suggests. It's a placeholder for the International Education Mark, or IEM, a regulation that was supposed to come in by 2016. In response to a query by Nervous State, a spokesperson from the Department of Further and Higher Education said that legislative provisions for the introduction of the IEM were enacted in 2019. Quote, Upon its introduction, the IEM will provide a full quality framework for the provision of education to international learners. They did not say, however, when they expected to be introduced nor what measures will be in place for oversight. It's worth questioning if the state is choosing to ignore and delay its responsibility to ensure that English language sector is fairly regulated because of the economic benefits it brings to the state. While reforms introduced in 2015 appeared to regulate the quality of educational services, what we see is that in practice, When a school is found lacking, it's the students and the teachers who pay the price. Here, we'd like to introduce the concept of nativism. Nativism is an ideology where those considered to be native inhabitants are prioritised over those labelled as non-native. Those who hold nativist viewpoints attempt to keep those who do not meet their definition of nationhood out of the country. Those who are in the country are considered undesirables and are only permitted to be in the state under conditions of second-class citizenship. We think the poor treatment of students from outside the EU studying English in Ireland is at least partially linked to nativism. This is evident in the treatment of international English language students who face huge barriers in accessing social protection services, in dealing with immigration, who experience poor housing and employment conditions and are often not provided with good quality education, despite paying very high fees. Nativism is especially intrinsic to our immigration policies, which in no way could be considered neutral or objective. They are drenched in political ideology and political objectives. The term, quote, policy interests of the state and similar terminology come up over and over again in Irish immigration documents, including in the state's reason for its detention of Estefani Alcunta. There is a consistent assumption in official state policy that migrants inherently pose a financial and cultural threat to the state. Notably, the terminology points to a threat to the state, and not necessarily to its inhabitants. Well, do the policy interests of the state align with your personal interests? And is the nativist ideology that underpins our immigration policy and the policies of many other countries really serving us? And are there any other philosophies that we should base our immigration policies on?
0: That was La Hela Jones hosting, with production assistance by Sean Coleman, and editing assistance by Martin Lean. Next up, Martin Lean interviews the well-beloved folk troubadour underground balladeers, the Mary Wallopers. Uh, Martin has described their energy as being like a meeting of the Clancy Brothers and John Lydon. The 22-minute segment sees Martin chat to the lads about the affective resonance of Dundalk Town. Um, but not in those terms thankfully Uh, the hopefully temporary move from gigging to live streaming and their down and up relationship with our national broadcaster and a bit of 5G thrown in also Um, I for one first became aware of them in their hip hop incarnation TPM uh, with their breakout recession anthem all the Boys on the fast Course, All the Boys on the Dull, which came out around one and a half emigration waves ago, I feel. Um, here's Martin and The Curse of Merry Wallopers.
6: I'm not looking for fame, I already sign my name each week at a little window pane. I don't have a job and that's not right, but you should take a look at the Foss website. Gonna raise a flag up a pole for the boys on the fast Course, the boys on the Dull.
7: I'm here with the Mary Wallopers. Uh, that's Andrew, Sean, and and Charles. And um, hello, you, hello, you how are you doing? You guys up up home in Dundalk?
8: No, we're actually in uh, Fairview and in uh, a little man called Chris Barry's studio. Oh. So uh,
9: Chris
8: Barry. We've, we've come up with loads of nicknames for him, and it's really been great here. So We're, we're here. having great fun. I think this is our second last day of recording what is going to be the greatest album in the last, uh, recorded in December, or recorded in November from of a from, North from a band
9: from North Loud.
8: From a band from North Loud. So it will actually be the greatest album from a folk band from North Loud.
7: Very good. We're looking forward to it. How long have you been, how long have you been recording it? Two uh, weeks.
8: This is there eighth, eighth day, yeah. But we've been doing very intensive so we've been like doing 12-hour days.
7: Very good. And what's the um, new album called?
9: We, don't, we, we know. don't know yet. We might call it yet. The Curse of the Mary Wallopers. For years, we've talked about calling it The Curse of the Mary Wallopers. But, that's but what that. do you think
7: it that? The Curse of the Mary Wallopers? Yeah, that's a good name, I reckon.
9: Yeah, oh, it sounds yeah. a bit piratey, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But we are kind of a cursed band as well.
7: In what way?
8: We're uh, cursed with, with the crippling anxiety that we get from drinking all night.
7: <laughs> <laughs>
8: <laughs> I don't know what you're <laughs> We're also we're also just Chris's studio doesn't have any lights working upstairs at the moment. So we're kind of in a dark room. I'm surprised it's so bright. I, it's it's actually a credit to movie.
9: the camera on this phone because I, well it's probably a credit to them
7: light you've uh, windows a, you've well. got pointed at the skylight.
9: <laughs> yes, yeah, that's do. probably helping. Also, I don't yeah. know if you can see this but in Chris Barry's
8: studio he has tin foil tape to the ceiling. So I don't know if he's one of these conspiracy theorists.
7: Ah,
9: <laughs> was oh, no, us, no, he was no. he was telling us that he he tapes the tin foil to the skylight to stop the five G rays <laughs> and chemtrails. That's what he said.
7: All right, would you guys be would you guys be concerned about the five G rays? I saw you were on the beach with a with a with a couple of them up and. Up oh, we
8: were we went with a couple of them. We well we actually didn't know they were protesting that day as well.
9: Yeah, we were just
8: we work. were just going down because we want to open the old shop. We actually center.
9: protested the beach there twice a week so we go down so to that
8: happens. beach the whole time because it's very close to our house so we were actually a bit appalled to see them there I don't know what nonsense they were on about
9: <laughs> I didn't really oh. care it was more about our own protest anyway because we were working on it every week so.
7: and what's your what's your protest?
9: we just want things to, to be the way they used to be yeah
8: because that's better Fair we enough. would prefer if things stopped getting more advanced I don't advanced. like I just like the old ways look. if things keep going advanced then that's bad Like
9: we think do you remember the yeah. way, like when we were all like it used to be? Like, do you remember it used
8: to be, and, and it'd be really good, and we used to be able to eat a spoonful of butter with our dinner every night, and all that? You know, ah, that's the way yeah. the old ways was, and that the old ways are really great. Yeah. Now, only joking. We don't believe any of that.
7: <laughs> 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 so, uh, tell me about. About the new album. Is it like is it is there many of your own songs in it or is it is it like what what kind of There's what, our own arrangements of that. songs
9: and then kind of bits of, we've added on little bits here and there, but uh mostly it's, it's, it's the all songs. the songs uh, people it's
8: the wa- want to hear. Because it would be wrong of us to release an album without having the songs that people like on it.
7: Okay, what do people like?
8: People uh, like people building like. up and tearing England down. What else mm-hmm. do people like Sean? Don't know what the people like. People like uh, Eileen Oak. People like
7: Eileen Oak. Eileen Oak. People oh, yeah. like
8: cod liver oil and the orange juice, and that's a new record of it. and guess what? It's got brass.
9: It's oh. a new improved version. And
8: Very there's gonna good. we're really nervous because a lot of people are gonna be like, "Well, I actually prefer the old version." But
9: but it's all right because we we are not afraid to lose fans. We'll just wait. Well, maybe we are. I didn't think about <laughs> that. We'll. We'll, we'll check in on that later. But uh, it depends. I don't know. I don't want the bluff to be called. So uh, but yeah, <laughs> but
7: all, it's going to be good.
8: They'll be all yeah. nice songs. We're pretty happy with it now.
9: stage. Yeah. it's good so
8: fun.
7: Where do you guys find your um, your um, your songs? Because I think a lot of the thing with like old folk songs is there the, the kind of history of them, you know, there's a kind of really yeah. good story behind all of them. So how do wh- where do you guys find them? Where did you find C- Codliver Island, the Orange Juice, for example?
6: Music. Oh ho ho V insider I for a hell of a mystery Hot level I'm the only do. Does this bus go to the dinosaur parlay? Oh ho ho I'm looking for a lot I've got a pair of sand shoes. Aha, got a hell of a funny. Got liver oil and the on in Oh ho ho I bogger up
8: I was bought a record of hamish imlac before and it had that on it and, and that but that's where i first heard it but the uh, youtube was where i mainly listened to it you know and we're, yeah. we're kind of you know we're not ashamed of the fact that you can get amazing folk songs off youtube that aren't really that you know class
9: and the traditional popular, so, music so, is deadly as well. yeah
8: but but yeah. other than that like we actually do get songs from like people in pubs and that like Mick Dunn is one of the lads that used to go to our session and he is an encyclopedia yeah. of of ballads or like a really an encyclopedia and then of like, we
9: picked him up and in, in singing sessions like there was a great singing session in in Drogheda in Carbery's
8: yeah it's a great pub know. in Drogheda where we there was some a singing was session that, that the voice squad was the name of these this band and they're all old books now but uh, <laughs> uh but they're all they all go there on a Wednesday yeah, and do a singing circle and it is the most magical singing um their on class. The planet Earth. Yeah. So we got some songs from that. We robbed some songs off of them. But they knew we were doing it. So that's alright.
7: <laughs> oh yeah, fair enough. And uh like you've 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 gained a whole lot of new followers during the lockdown, haven't you? Yeah,
1: yeah. like
8: we we've gained because we did we decided to start doing live streams and uh, maybe a bit different than just doing like a gig and live stream. We have the pub. It's like a virtual pub
9: experience.
8: Yeah, that's what we want it to be. But we've gained like followers in different countries. Like in America, we have a nice following now, and in like all over the world, that we would have only gotten from actually gigging in those places. But uh, with the live streams, you know, we didn't have to do that. And now we've got like, I think we sold like a hundred T-shirts to America there the last run of T-shirts we did, which is pretty mad. You know, considering we've never been to America. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So we're getting all them U.S. dollars in. <laughs> America's America is
9: actually the greatest country in the world. and uh, Everyone knows that. Yeah. Yeah. Just a reminder. <laughs> but,
7: uh, <laughs> and, um, So like, and you so you played like, I a, a read some place, you, you, you played about 150 gigs last, last year. Yeah. yeah. Roughly. So, so how do you, how do you go from like, and from like playing 150, 150 gigs in a year to playing none? Like how do, how, how do you get a buzz? When you, you know, they started you know, how, doing live streams. How do you replace that, Buzz? So you so starting doing the the live streams. Well, the minute
9: the, at the start of lockdown, we were supposed to do two nights of gigs in Germany, and then the night of the second gig, get a like three hour train, and then get a plane to England and do two gigs in one day, and then fly to Cork and do a gig in Cork, and then go to Dublin and do a gig there, and they all got cancelled, and, and very quickly, like I think a day or two into them being cancelled, the the room, like the sitting room, was full of stuff and we just started tearing it apart i'm i'm building a pub building the stream live stream thing.
8: but, uh, but uh, even at that it's hard to get the buzz like the live streams are great crack because that's why they're so we're, we're so adamant about keeping them interactive with the audience yeah. because it's because then you have an audience you know yeah. what i
9: mean but we definitely miss the buzz of playing live and stuff yeah
8: and stuff. like it's it's awful not having gigs at the start we were kind of like you know doing interviews and we'd be like Oh, it's no bother. there people worse off than we us. We had good fun like, no. For there's a while. no one worse off than us. We hate this.
9: Yeah. But uh, uh, no, we, we, It's yeah, good it that, that we got the album done stuff, because we were we find it very hard to not do gigs. So uh, we maybe we kind of needed nature to stop us from doing gigs so we could do this album. But uh, now that it's over, uh, we need nature to go away, and uh, we'll start doing gigs again.
8: We didn't realise how good gigs are for our mental health. Yeah. You
10: know. thought they're bad for us.
8: Yeah, we always thought gigs were really bad for us, even though like we'd be drinking it all the whole time when we we're playing gigs, but like it, it's such a release. I think we're yeah. way more anxious and kinda of a bit depressed because we don't have concerts and everything yeah. that goes with them, like the travel and you know, that's what really gives you a purpose in life is actually think, doing that. I think
9: a lot of people will uh, will realize how important going to gigs and stuff like that is now after this. So that would be good. Like when when lockdown is over, I'd say more people will be enjoying going to gigs and stuff because it's a great part of
7: life. Yeah, for sure, it's brilliant. It's a real good bit of escapism from the uh, everyday. Um, yeah, like so, like you're also in in a, another band, T T TPM. Uh, hip-hop group so like what kind of crossover do you get between the audiences are you froze nope. there for oh, a 2nd i think you're right, back. i said yeah
8: i suppose the the main thing is that the politics are pretty much the same you know the, and the name humors. is kind of the same
9: the humor like we're still like full <laughs> of i think there's a lot of crossover with fans to be honest i think uh i think you with you the mary wallopers
8: though uh, uh definitely our fans can bond with their grandparents over but our fans at TPM cannot bond with their grandparents over TPM at all. <laughs> gran- Sometimes grandparents like it, but their grandparents that are... You, you don't know, have very, very cool grandparents to, listen to be listening listen to TPM. But uh, and yeah, they do I exist. the attitude is the same. You know, it's an anti-authority kind of punk message. You know? the same yeah.
7: Yeah.
9: yeah, It's
8: the same sort of yeah. thing, you know. So yeah. really a lot of TPM fans would be Mary Oliver's fans and vice versa cool some people Um, some people were getting angry because we went on RTE as the Mary Wallopers and you know TPM have that anti-RTE song
7: yeah of course
8: yeah but we are actually allowed to do that we can can contradict ourselves but we're not But we also (laughs) don't we don't not not agree with
9: the TPM song anymore it's not like we're going on it's just better us on it than anybody. it's not like we're going on RTE like say in Finnegaler class or anything
7: there's kind of something I find, like from from bands and musicians who come from Dundalk, is that they always are very kind of proud of their sense of place. Like Jinx Lennon would be the same. Like you'd really, yeah. you know, kind of, there's a there seems to be a special kind of relationship with people from there. Like, what is it you reckon that gives you that kind of energy yeah, and kind of yeah,
9: yeah?
8: People love Dundalk when they're like. I suppose it's because Dundalk has been given a name of uh, uh El Paso and all that, and it was really rough. I know oh, they're all in the IRA and all that for years. So Dundalk people. You know, they are proud of where they're from because instead of going and being ashamed of your town, people became proud of it. The football team even like adds a lot, you know, because they're they're really great. I and think
9: even being it. a town on the border, there's kind of a fight for identity there and stuff. It's like
8: yeah, and 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 even like as for bands, like when we were younger, like when we were teenagers, the sports bowl there was a bowling alley that used to do teenage gigs, and like pretty much everyone we know that was in the in the bands when we were teenagers are still in bands now so it's kind of like not that we were all encouraging each other loads or anything but it's like it it was there it was very easy to join a band and start playing gigs instantly when you were a teenager and the dog and i think it's always kind of been like that um
7: i wanted to ask you too like so there's a there's a really there seems to be a really good kind of like folk trad scene at the moment like you know lots of kind of really good kind of yeah. young kind of bands and lots of opportunities to kind of to to kind of collaborate, and you guys as TPM also collaborate a, a lot with different kind of di- different different kind of bands. Like how do you how do you find that whole kind of collaboration process?
8: Uh, well, we did a song uh, with TPM with Post Punk Podge, who is a is a life force of of
9: epic proportion. So uh, that was the last collaboration we did. I suppose one. if you're Post-Punk collaborating Podge. with another band as well, like they all have the same kind of ideals as us, same sense of humor and stuff. So. Yeah, and with I think Pudge, with Pudge it's easy. It's
8: yeah. very easy to collaborate We get Pudge.
9: on very well with Podge
8: he he and his techno hippies are unbelievable. We would we would we would kill a man for post punk podge. And we would kill <laughs> anyone for post punk podge. <laughs> so it, it's go. easy doing that sort of collab. Uh folk stuff.
9: Well, I don't think we've done many collabs with well, We've had players. we've had Podge play in like a Glastonbury Podge
8: we've a few people on the album playing stuff and
9: that so that's good yeah there's lots of people on the album from other bands so. yeah oh, very good it's just great it's great to see them all as well because we would have been seeing them a lot more over crossing over the country doing gigs and stuff so probably the first first time we've seen a lot of the people this year was when they came to do stuff on the albums that was good
7: Very good and, um, so you had a really good Halloween special there on your TV channel let's uh, let Left. Yes, oh, that, that was deadly. So, have you got a have have you got a, another big one lined up for Christmas time?
8: Yes, yes. On the twenty third of December, when when the veil between the living and dead is at its thinnest, we'll be doing a Christmas special. You know, Santi might show up. We're in touch with Santi now at the moment, trying to get. We're him gonna to have come lots out. of guests. It's gonna be good. Uh, yeah, it's gonna be a lethal one. So, I think we'll have some in-house guests. We're gonna, gonna do, some songs well. We'll do some Christmas songs as well. will do some Christmas songs. Lesser known Christmas songs, very well known Christmas songs. And uh, we've also got Fake Snow. So we're doing it on the <laughs> 23rd of December. So hopefully people gather around the L computer and okay. uh, watch the Mary Wallopers and get very merry, get blotto on this 23rd. Drink mulled wine, and we will also do that.
7: Very good. And say if people want to follow you like today, follow you on Patreon or.
8: Yes, we have a Patreon set up because we wanted to keep the live streams free but they do cost a bit to actually do them so to keep them free we set up a Patreon where so when we do a live stream we leave it up for like a week or so or whenever we decide to take it down and then uh, if you join our Patreon you can just watch all of the live streams as much as you want uh, so so and there's other other, there's tiers, other tiers, yeah. that allows us to keep it free for everyone pretty much you know and, and,
9: and you, you will be so able to watch it repeatedly like people who can afford to pay to help out do that do and that. Then also people who can't afford it you can just watch it.
8: Yeah, so we've got a Patreon and we're selling t-shirts at the moment for for Christmas too. So uh people can go on camp at if you now. order
9: before the end of the month we'll get them out before Christmas.
8: Yeah, and we we've, okay. we've also got a raffle at the moment. Going. yeah we're kind of we're kind of uh have a lot of stuff going on at the moment <laughs> but we have a raffle to help us pay for recording where you can win uh, uh an ink original drawn
9: of a pig playing the tin whistle. Very good. So People definitely would want that. So hopefully more people buy raffle tickets. So, so we're uh, not we're not in Chris Barry's kitchen scrubbing the dishes to pay for off the next, for the next <laughs> two years.
8: But uh, <laughs> yeah, no. We so if you go on our band camp, Mary Wallopers band camp, or on our Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or any of those websites, you you'll find all the details of what you can do to help the Mary Wallopers remain in the public eye and become stronger by the week.
7: Brilliant. Well, I hope our listeners will get onto that. Uh, so. Ooh. Thanks very much, guys. I'd say that. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Martin. But uh, thank you very much. Okay, cool. Nice one. Thanks, guys. Great. Thank you very much, Martin. Cheers,
0: that was hosted, produced and edited by Martin Lean. And it was recorded in late November. So what you're going to want to do is, you're gonna wanna open up Bandcamp right now, take your phone out of your pocket, open your computer, open up the bandcamp webpage navigate to the mary wallopers bandcamp webpage go to their merch section and buy one of their t-shirts right now this moment because they'll be flying out of the proverbial warehouse or maybe there's a real warehouse i don't know but while stocks last the clock is ticking uh, in our next segment, uh, Katrina Devery spoke with artist and researcher Sarah Brown, who curated this year's uh, Tolka Festival. The Sulka Festival is a visual arts uh, festival, which has been going on in Galway since 2002, um, and they commission a different curator every year who comes up with their own theme. Uh, this year, the curator is artist Sarah Brown, and the program is called The Laws of White Dog. The title is taken from a book by Colin Diane. An interdisciplinary legal scholar, and uh, the subtitle of the book is "How Legal Rituals Make and Unmake Persons." Uh, it occurs to me that uh, you know the the you know concept of nativism that um, that that Lahela talked about in our first segment uh, kind of comes to mind there. But anyway, Sarah draws on engagement with the law in her own practice, and she's put together a program of artworks and events that uh, you know in a very challenging context. Um, but also, I uh, can't resist, but, you know, the cliché goes that the law is an ass and it, uh, asses have historically been ripe for artistic uh, exploration. Uh, anyway, that's, that's that. Um, anyway, here's Katrina.
11: Tulka Festival of Visual Art has been going in Galway since 2002, commissioning a different curator every year who comes up with their own theme. This year, the curator is artist Sarah Brown, whose programme is called The Law is a White Dog. It's been a very difficult year to plan on things like this and as we record the interview it wasn't yet clear if the physical exhibition spaces will be able to reopen post level five. The program however also includes some non-exhibition elements including a book and a podcast. So if you're interested to hear more about those and also whether the galleries might reopen go to the website tulca.ie that's t-u-l-c-a dot I-E. So hello Sarah and welcome to the show. So The Law as a White Dog is the title for your curatorship of this year's Tulka. Where
12: did that idea come from? Um, hi, Katrina. So I was invited to apply to be the curator of this year's Tolka. I'm typically an artist. I don't typically curate projects. So the ideas for Tolka, the proposal that I put forward, was really coming from research interests from my own practice. I proposed this title of The Laws of White Dog, which is borrowed from a book by a legal scholar called Colin Diane. And the book is subtitled "How Legal Rituals Make and Unmake Persons," and I was really interested in exploring how this um, like category, categorization of personhood in law, how that might be um, met by artists. Um, and in Diane's book, she talks about her book is very much focused in on the USA and particularly histories of slavery. So how somebody being defined as a non-person means that they can't experience pain, they can't make contracts, they don't have rights over their own body or over property. And I was very curious about how that book might, how some of her ideas might map in some way onto a West of Ireland context, um, both in terms of Ireland's very long and dark history of confinement um, up to the present day.
11: So obviously... This year has been incredibly difficult for anyone involved in any kind of public events. And what was it like for you putting together the programme amidst this uncertainty about whether the venues would be able to open?
12: So from the beginning, we tried to, I guess, plan the programme in a way that would be quite robust, that we would have for sure a book, which could be a way of bringing together these practices some of which are quite research orientated and it would suit that kind of intimacy of engagement with the book. The idea for a podcast series came later and was partly driven by some of the artists interests and my own in thinking about like an aesthetic of access and what accessibility means usually but also particularly in this time of the pandemic when people are confined.
11: Were there certain things that you were disappointed that you weren't able to do because of the pandemic
12: yeah I mean I had hoped to spend more time in Galway um I suppose um and to work more with legal infrastructure in the city NUIG has an amazing law school so it wasn't possible to do physical events with those with those people um or in like courthouse buildings for example But it did become possible to work with, say, Mabel Rourke, who is a human rights Mm. lawyer in NUIG, and also Eleanor Flynn and Maria Nieflaherta, who work in the Centre for Disability Law and Policy, Mm. and also Justice for Magdalene's Research, um, who I've worked with before. But those people become collaborators through the book and through the podcast that we've made, rather than in physical kind Mm. of dialogue. So you've, you've really engaged there with
11: academics, with activists in relation to human rights and, and justice. What do you see as art's role in that context?
12: What becomes clear in, I, I feel, in the works that we experience in the Law as a White Dog is that there's many different forms of address to power. And language emerges as a very important one of those, like forms of address, and the necessity to to have your language understood, whatever that is. And if you're a certain kind of person, if you uh, communicate in a certain way, I'm thinking in particular of the video by A.M. Bags, who's a non-speaking autistic person, your language will not be understood and you might not be believed by the law. So to me, I suppose art is, it sounds may be very simplistic but it is a form of expression that is trying to be heard and is trying to change those institutions of power maybe that it's addressing.
11: Tell us a bit more about
12: In My Language. So the film by A.M. Bags is called In My Language and this was one of the pieces from the beginning I was really sure that I wanted to include and foreground in the show, in the project it's a video that was made in 2007 and it's still widely available on YouTube it's, it wasn't made as an artwork particularly it's 9 minutes long and it's in two in two parts the first part we see a person moving around their their home kind of in dialogue with their surroundings they're they're singing they're kind of interacting with water in a certain way they're touching objects and then It's a little bit, it's not really clear what's happening, even though the actions seem very deliberate. And then in the second half of the video, BAGS describes it as a translation of the first bag, AM BAGS at different times is known as Mel BAGS and Amelia E. Voicey BAGS. They died this year and this video became very well known in the disability justice community particularly because it's making this argument that it shouldn't be up to neurodiverse people to learn how to speak the language of authority. You know, different languages should be understood on their own terms. Mm. And for someone who doesn't speak and looks a certain way, they describe just being written off as a non-person and how that Mm. harmed their life.
11: So here's a short extract from A.M. Bag's In My Language
13: We are even viewed as non-communicative if we don't speak the standard language. But other people are not considered non-communicative if they are so oblivious to our own languages as to believe they don't exist. In the end I want you to know that this has not been intended as a voyeuristic freak show where you get to look at the bizarre workings of the autistic mind. It is meant as a strong statement on the existence and value of many different kinds of thinking and interaction in a world where how close you can appear to a specific one of them determines whether you are seen as a real person, or an adult, or an intelligent person, and in a world in which those determine whether you have any rights. There are people being tortured, people dying, because they are considered non-persons, because their kind of thought is so unusual as to not be considered thought at all. Only when the many shapes of personhood are recognized will justice and human rights be possible.
11: Power Structures and Exclusion also come up in another work in the, in the program, uh, Maud Craigie's Indications of Guilt, Part One, which is a film about the psychological interrogation techniques used by the police in, in the U.S. And the artist went undercover to, to actually do some of this training in these ter- interrogation techniques. And let's hear a little clip from that first. I rocked the baby. They told me to rock the baby. I rocked the baby.
14: And I, and I believe that. That's absolutely true, okay? But what's missing from that is that you rocked the baby just a little bit too hard. When you did that, did you mean to hurt the baby or were you just frustrated?
12: I would never hurt the baby. I, know I was that. trying I, to calm it down, thank you for it was ans-
14: trying. Thank you for answering that question because I don't believe that you wanted to hurt that baby. What I believe is that you were frustrated. Because this baby wouldn't stop. And you know, remember I told you, I was there. My son just wouldn't stop crying. And even me, because I'm a regular guy trying to get through the day just like you are. All right? I wanted to throw my child against the wall. I wanted to shake my own baby. My own flesh and blood. I I get it. I get it. I get it. I understand it. All right? I don't think you're a monster. But other people will. No. Yeah. No,
4: won't. no.
14: They well they can time those no those injuries. The the injuries grow at a certain place. It wasn't, me. It wasn't it, me. You were the only it one there. Me. It wasn't me. Well, who was it
15: then?
12: So well, tell us about that piece and, and why you chose it. There's a series of stage scenes, which is what we hear okay. in the clip. With those stage scenes, there's also documentary scenes and there's extracts from the training material that she was delivered. So as well as doing undercover training, she also spoke with a lot of different detectives and police officers in different states. And her particular focus in the film is the kind of relationship between fictional representations of law enforcement and actual law enforcement. So something that emerges in the film is how like clips from The Wire and LA Confidential are used as part of some of this training material wow. that emphasises drama and emphasises um, extracting confessions from people in dubious ways, I would say. Mm. I think it's fair to say.
11: So to play us out, we're going to hear a song from a film by Rory Pilgrim. And the film is called The Undercurrent and the song is called Maximum Crisis,
12: Maximum Calm. What's the film about? They've made a film with a group of young people in Idaho who are climate activists and they're actually, I guess a lot of the film is situated around their lack of access to democratic processes. They're too young to vote. That kind of structure of political engagement is not really meaningful in their lives. And what starts as a project about a climate crisis kind of moves into quite emotional and emotive questions around spirituality and gender identity and it's all linked through song actually i feel 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 i want to feel feel because i want to feel
13: Maximum call
12: to Maximum recover to the earth, our mother.
13: It might feel too easy to say, but I'm gonna. 'Cause it's all that I can say, and I wanna
11: maximum crisis, maximum call, maximum recover
12: to the earth, our mother.
0: Uh, hosted and produced by Katrina Devry with editing assistance by Sean Finon. For many uh, professionals, uh, 2020 has been the year of working from home, um, but uh, this just isn't an option for many low paid workers. Uh, workers on zero hour contracts or without sick pay really haven't had the option but to show up for work, uh, often risking their health by doing so at a time when you don't want to do that. Ireland is one of the few countries in the EU without mandatory sick pay and the government hasn't talked about bringing it in before the end of 2021 despite the public health problems it's created throughout the pandemic. There's that word again. Uh, has COVID exposed the existence of a two-tier workforce um, and you know what is there to be learned about this going forward? So in our next segment, um, our, our regular panel discussion, Uh, Patrick McCusker is joined by Michelle Murphy uh, and she's a policy analyst for Social Justice Ireland and also by Andrew Flood, an independent researcher and host of The Plague Tapes on Miss Cloud uh, to discuss uh, this, this pressing issue. For many professionals, 2020 has been the year of working from home. However,
16: for many service industry and manufacturing workers, this simply isn't an option. Their jobs are either necessarily public facing, or involve working in close proximity to others, putting them at great risk of contracting COVID. This problem was compounded by the fact that Ireland is one of only three EU countries without mandatory sick pay. Someone on a zero-hours contract doesn't have the luxury of self-isolating for two weeks if they show COVID symptoms, which puts their own health and that of their colleagues at risk. Containing COVID is nearly impossible in this situation, as seen by the outbreaks in meat plants throughout the summer. Despite the clear public health risk this problem creates, government has been slow to move on it and recent announcements that there will be mandatory sick pay in place by the end of 2021 are of little help to containing COVID now. This has raised the question, has COVID exposed the existence of a two-tier workforce, divided between those able to work from home with minimal financial disruption and those whose livelihoods are placed in danger by lockdown but who risk being exposed to COVID if they work at all? therefore bearing both the financial and medical brunt of the problem. If so, how has this come about and what is to be done? I'm delighted to be joined to discuss this by Michelle Murphy, researcher and policy analyst at Social Justice Ireland, and Andrew Flood, an independent researcher and host of the Plague Tapes on Mixcloud. Thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you. So, Michelle... how has COVID exposed problems with income and job inequality that long preceded the pandemic?
17: So it's a really spotlighted the fact that we have a low pay problem in this country. I mean, we've persistently had a problem with low pay. Uh, We are, I think, second only to the United States in terms of the incidents that we have in the low pay area in the OECD. Um, So they define low pay as earnings that are below two thirds of the country's median income, so the income in the middle, Um, and so the thresholds there if you look at the figures from the CSO that means the threshold for low pay here is around 395 euros a week and um, so if you're below this you're considered to be working for low pay and it, it has consistently hasn't really gotten that much attention yet uh, if you see th- those workers that are either disproportionately impacted and on the pandemic unemployment payment or those workers who are unable to work from home and are going to the workplace they're generally those in low paid sectors, they're in caring roles, they're in front facing roles, or if they've lost their jobs, they're in retail, they're in hospitality. And generally, they're predominantly younger people as well. And uh, women also are disproportionately impacted. And then the second issue that I think it's shone a light on is the issue of income adequacy and income adequacy in terms of social welfare, because the pandemic unemployment payment was set at €350 euros a week very quickly. And in fairness to the department, of Employment Affairs and Social Protection at the time, they were able to roll it out to those people who needed it. It was easy to apply for it. But, you know, if you were made unemployed the week before, you're expected to survive on 203 euros a week. And if you're under 25, you're expected to survive on even less again. So now, at this stage, we have three almost a four-tier social welfare system there has been an acknowledgement by government in the fact that they set the pandemic unemployment rate at 250 years a week that 203 years a week is simply not enough to survive on in this country so we're in a situation now where our social welfare system is tiered um those who are most vulnerable are being most impacted by covid they're most likely to be left behind. And despite, I suppose, uh, quite a lot of discussion around, a, you know, a new social contract, maybe some more philosophical discussions about where society was going, how we value work, what's the difference between work and employment and, you know, what roles do we do we really value as a society? That seems to have stalled. And if you look at any of the messaging coming out now from governments, even after the budget or, or around the National Economic Plan, it's all about um, prudence, getting back on our feet, fiscal responsibility, the sort of a broader reaching philosophical discussions to really I suppose grapple with the changes and the challenges we face um, seem to have faded and I I think that's particularly challenging because if we are ever going to deal with it the issue of inequality, low pay, poverty, and they're all intertwined, then you know that they, they, they require, I suppose, a radical shift in our thinking.
16: Something that I find very interesting is that NEFID recommended a policy to protect jobs and to provide sick pay and went so far as to admonish the government during the summer for failing to implement one. Why was this advice ignored, especially after the first wave? No, I think that,
18: that's a good question, because it's what got us into a lot of trouble in August because I think a lot of the meat plant outbreaks, when you look at them, there's got to be a high level of suspicion that there was an awareness people were sick and that was being ignored you know, by management, but also some workers had some interest in that as well because of the lack of sick pay. Uh, because you got, with all the outbreaks, you got these claims that everybody was asymptomatic, you know. So you were, you were getting outbreaks of 80 or 90 people, and rather than it being the sort of the typical 20% asymptomatic, everybody was, which is not particularly believable. I think there are a load of areas, and there, I mean, the pandemic unemployment payment, the initial 350 level is interesting, because there's a load of areas where the immediate response of the government was much closer to what was needed and then as it went on they sort of returned to a much more standard model and i think sick pay that's the most obvious thing around us where they obviously did a calculation that well if we make meat plant owners pay sick pay that'll cut so much into you know the profits of the industry and i mean look, it's, the whole beef baron segment is one of the most rot- rotten parts of the Irish economy for, for decades. I mean, the story around that goes back decades. So I, I think that's the reason it was, they simply did a costing on it and went, oh, this will cost quite a lot to do, so we'll risk it. Um, and possibly they believe that the whole uh, contact tracing could contain outbreaks, but that, that seems to be the case. And I, I was just looking at the HPSC data uh for outbreaks for last week and i think there's 22 of last week outbreaks are workplace related ones and that's so that's separate from retail and all all the other things so in fact i mean that's a very big proportion of the ones that are not taking place in homes like that's 448 whatever we understand that's always going to be a big number but when you look at the rest of them that's actually one of the major contributing factors um, we know some cases i've i've heard of over the last week where you've got factories continuing in production that are definitely making stuff that's non-essential <laughs> toys or whatever uh, and people being told to come back into work after they've been tested but before they've got results and all that sort of thing going on so I, I like i think that's that's essentially what it is it, it's a simple well we could do this but not only would it cost too much, but it also might be hard to roll back on afterwards. I'm not particularly convinced by this promise of having some, you know universal sick pay at the end of 2021. We could well have a, a different government by then, and with luck, we'll also have mass vaccination by then. So that could be something that quietly gets shelved. But uh, yes, having it a year away, or a year and 12 months, or a year and two months away in, in the context of a pandemic. one um, of the obvious things you could say in relation to the meat plants in particular, like a lot of the people working in the meat plants are migrant workers. Uh, A lot of them are here, at least in theory, for relatively short periods of time. And then, uh, you know, going back to whatever countries they came from. And the situation with migrant agricultural work everywhere in the global north is pretty terrible. Like, it's all about minimising uh, work rights, uh, minimising pay levels and doing that thing where you shuffle people in and out all the time so they don't have a chance to get organised um, and certainly I listened to the, um, the door committee hearings on the meat plants were interesting because they had some representation from, from unions uh, and uh, migrant rights people in terms of the sort of conditions and what that actually means in practice, which is pretty terrible, uh, you know, and, and that isn't a So I think there is that.
17: On a broader note, reflects on our, our economic model. Even if you look at, I suppose, the the sectors that, you know, we've either been trying to attract in this country prior to COVID that our FDI was focused on and was the, the minimal regulation we, we applied there. I suppose Airbnb would be an obvious example. And then uh, after the pandemic and maybe Maybe perhaps I think a month, almost two months in as the discussion around flexible working, remote working and, you know, work-life balance for people, for those of us who have the luxury to engage in it um, became more topical. You know, that I noted that a a study was launched and some research was launched about how... uh, People wanted to get back to their offices which i found interesting and then you realize the study has been funded by those companies that own office blocks because their profits rely on getting people back into the office space and yet nowhere in the and it was broadsheet newspapers was it reported who had actually funded this study which i you know i I find interesting because then that becomes an agenda on you know weekend talk shows for example we have to get people back into the offices. The city centre is being hollowed out, coffee shops are closing down. it's like, well, you know, maybe we should get people back living in urban centres as opposed to just working there. Perhaps it's not necessarily a deliberate policy, but what it does highlight is perhaps the model that we've been following is wrong. And, you know, those people now who are most impacted by the current situation were among those who were most impacted in 2008 and who never really recovered. And, you know, unless we really bring about some sort of significant shift in our thinking and change in our policy, which... You know, judging from what's coming out of government at the moment, despite the lofty language in the program for government, I suppose actions speak louder than words and actions thus far, especially after the budget. You know, I I wouldn't be incredibly hopeful that we're going to see that radical shift.
16: Now, no employer wants to have to let people go, but it's proved nearly impossible to find a balance between keeping people at work and containing COVID in workplaces. What do you think the key lessons which government and businesses failed to learn from the first wave were and why?
17: Well I suppose the first thing is how many of us in general can you work in a workplace where you can absolutely keep two meters apart from your colleagues for, for the entire day and then keep a two meter distance as you travel unless you travel in your own car on your own to work home from work at your lunch break everything it, it's it's very very difficult to do that, and I think if you look at where the outbreaks have been, in particular, both in terms of care settings, nursing homes, meat plants. It's also what are the living conditions for a lot of those workers as well. You know, especially for migrant workers in particular, they're living in crowded accommodation. It's very difficult to self-isolate. As Andrew mentioned, if you're not entitled to sick pay, you know, and you're relying on an income, then you know, more likely to go into work. And I think, I think what you've seen is. Um, at a political level, certainly, you've seen a, a challenge to the public health advice, less clear guidance for employers because this is going to be a long-term or a long-to-medium-term issue that we're living with, you know. So, but there's no guidance, for example. So, what happens in January, February, March? Should people's, for example, start a, a staggered return to the workplace, or should flexible and remote working become the norm? And then, if that is the norm, then what are people's rights? Um, are there, you know, are there employment contracts going to be rewritten? For example, that your place of work is not your office. You know, an obvious.
18: When the pandemic started, I was watching quite a lot of the World Health Organization uh, sort of press briefings on it, and something they kept emphasising was that the way you needed to fight it was through community empowerment. And it took me a while to kind of catch why they were emphasising that. But I think it very much applies to the, the workplace situation here. One of the problems with the way things have happened is it's tended to always be very top-down. It's kind of this expectation, like on mask wearing, for instance, that until they introduced the law saying you had to wear a mask, a lot of people went wearing masks, you know. And then as soon as that was made a law, then, you know, very quickly that turned around. So that expectation that primarily the role of the stage to manage all these things. Um, and I think when you have Fianna Fáil, Gael running the state, that's not a great expectation in, in, in terms of, of workplaces. Uh, but the second thing is the level of detail means it may also be not very practical. So I think one of the key things that and it relates to sick pay, but it relates to other, other workplace issues as well that uh, was needed um, was stuff like uh, um, legal recognition for the right of workers to be represented by a union in, in conflict with employers. You can technically be a member of the union but the union has no right to representation so that doesn't mean anything. So what that means, the impact that means in terms of the pandemic is that if you have employers that are getting people to do stuff that's not safe, in an awful lot of contexts workers don't have any any mechanism to do anything about that. You know if you're unionized then and you have an active union in that place, then perhaps you do. And, and that may be one of the uh, reasons why things are different, for instance, a lot of public sector workplaces, uh, but otherwise you, you don't. Um, so I think the, the mistake, if you like, uh, w- was a, a focus that wasn't about empowering workers to actually look after safety at the workplaces themselves. Instead, all the guidance is about giving advice to employers about what they should do as best practice very little supervision or inspection in terms of are they actually doing that uh, and no power or no new power in terms of workers to uh, be able to take over that process themselves, go we're not happy with doing this, we want it done in this other way and um, I mean like if you look at say the construction sector uh, would be a good one where there's you know construction's a dangerous job, there are fatalities every year in it anyway and an awful lot of the pushes for safety have come from unionisation within that sector, then they get codified into law. But the the idea that the part of the answer to that has to be workers being empowered to actually say, no, this isn't safe, I think is is what's pretty central. It's not all a a question about how the state can best answer it.
16: Now, perhaps the grimmest aspect of this is that many of those worst affected by COVID are in industries that will take several years to recover such as hospitality, and will thus be worst affected in the inevitable recession afterwards. How can policymakers best ensure that their experience of the first and the second wave wouldn't be repeated in a third wave, and then from there ensure there isn't also a two-tiered recovery after the pandemic, where people who weren't particularly financially affected by it or at risk can go back to normal or thrive fairly quickly? Whereas those who were at work for an extended period of time or at risk, get laid off.
17: Well, I mean, the first thing you do is you don't do what we did in 2008. You know, the people who lost out uh, the most then were those on lowest incomes and younger people in particular. That cohort now of younger people who would have left college then were facing into a a labour market and if either they had to emigrate or, you know, they were here facing very poor prospects now 10 years later when they should be i so suppose stepping onto the career ladder making progress depending on their industry uh they're in a very difficult situation again um and after the the last crash the the, the number of young people not engaged in education employment or training up to 24 up to 30 up to 36 was growing across europe and in irish in Ireland and that, you know that's very very challenging. You know we had a youth guarantee at the time that you know it's questionable as, as to how effective it was yet you, you didn't see anything in the budget to really address the challenges that young people now face in the labour market. Um, there, there's a lot of talk about the challenges that young people face but there's nothing in there that's, that says what it's going to do about the wage scarring effect for young people. What they're going to do for, for all those young people in education who are looking at a lifetime's loss of about three percent of their their income as a result of the you know that the gap in their education from March, we know that the, all the international evidence shows us that those people on the lowest income, so you're looking at the bottom income decile, the bottom 10%, the income that they lose during a recession, they, they tend not to make up that income again, and they tend not to get back to the same position that they were prior to the recession. We, we saw that in 2008, and we're going to see that again. But what's concerning also is that the deprivation figures for 2019, you know, a year of record levels of growth, high levels of unemployment, generally positive economic indicators for this country, you had uh, an increase in the deprivation rate, which you know, which is the worrying trend. So, you, you know, the figures from 2020 and 2021, I mean, obviously you're going to see a, a large increase. So what we need to see is, um, in, as we move forward in terms of policy, uh, is a focus on sustained support for young people, uh, we don't make the mistakes of the youth guarantee, we need to learn from that, we need to support young people, we need to have a, a training system, an education system, a vocational training system, you know, that can respond to need. We need, um, I would argue, a, a floor of universal services and a universal basic income. So a combined floor of those for everybody at all stages of the life cycle across society. We need to look at, there was challenges regionally prior to COVID in terms of, you know, lower income levels, demographic challenges, career progression, employment challenges, po- you know, higher poverty rates, for example. All of those have simply just been exacerbated. And um, the Department of Social Protection published a, a paper earlier this year looking at the impact of the pandemic on employment and regionally and, and in terms of the industries and sectors. And realistically, you know, outside of Dublin, Cork, Limerick, those more rural and regional communities, they have some distance to go to make up the ground that they have lost. So, you know, they're going to need ongoing support, both in terms of income, but, you know, also in terms of like new thinking in terms of our policy about, you know, what things we support or don't support, what sort of services we provide or do not provide for people. And finally, and I'll, I'll I'll finish here is, as as we look to the future and you know what we're going to learn, we also have to think about how at the moment we're borrowing to fund a lot of uh, you know the, the support um, and the, you know we the, the European Commission and the European Central Bank will support us in our COVID borrowing in the long term because it, it doesn't make any sense not to. But beyond that, we need to look at how we fund our services and infrastructure and that, you know, inevitably will boil to a discussion around taxation, what we tax, who we tax, how we tax it uh, and how much we tax it. And that's not a discussion anyone in this country likes to have.
18: I suspect that on one level, the hospitality and tourism will see a uh, an explosive recovery, right? Providing that there's a fairly clear end point to the pandemic. So we can imagine that as being mass vaccination happening over a couple of months, right? Because I think there's probably an enormous amount of uh, pent-up demand, for lack of a better term. You know, everybody who hasn't been able to go out will. Uh, so there'll be quite an intense period of that. But it's going to be the meaning of that financially is going to be extremely asymmetrical, because you know you've got to, so people who are working minimum wage or close to minimum wage jobs in hospitality will get those jobs back, but they won't get all the income that's been lost over those months. Uh, a certain number of uh, hospitality businesses will have gone bankrupt, maybe quite a lot, maybe not so many. So the people owning them obviously won't get any benefit either. But the other ones are the ones who bought ones up in the meantime, we'll, we'll get we'll get a lot of it. And I think we're seeing the same uh, in terms of stock market movements as well, that, you know, you're seeing re- recoveries of wealth, but that it's very asymmetrical. So it's, it's a few people are doing very well out of that. Um, and uh, most people, and obviously <laughs> most workers who don't own anything in the way of stocks or shares, aren't getting anything out of it at all. So. I think it's gonna exasperate the situation already ex- that already existed of how asymmetrical wealth is in this country. Uh, and like the you know, the thing I always think about is housing and this discussion about affordable housing and the current controversy over the Oscar Trainer road site where, you know, the affordable housing on that site was going you'd need to have an income of sixty thousand a year, which, you know, pretty much rules out every Every ordinary worker in the hospitality sector. So, I, I think that question of what happens afterwards has to be a question of, of an e- economic reconstruction, uh, you know, that's often related to environmental terms, but, you know, a redefinition of what we mean by terms like affordable housing and all those sort of things, so that there's nobody excluded from that sort of list. Well, I think that's a bigger challenge, but yeah, my suspicion will be that it will be very asymmetrical, basically. Some people are going to do massively well. A lot of people are going to get the incomes back they had before, but not the money they've lost in the meantime.
0: The panel there was uh, hosted, edited, and produced by Patrick McCusker. In our last segment for 22 minutes, Dara Dean Gregory interviews Sean Murray, director of Unquiet Graves, which aired on RTE last September. This feature-length documentary uh, details how members of the Royal Irish Constabulary and the regiment of the British Army were centrally involved in the murder of over 120 civilians uh, over the course of the troubles in Northern Ireland in collusion with Loyalist paramilitaries, collectively known as the Glenang. Gang. This was a campaign that took place, what came to be known as the Murder Triangle, across Armagh and Mid Ulster from 1972 to 1978. And the documentary builds on the shocking work of Anne Cadwallader in her book Lethal Allies, which was released by Mercer Press in 2013. Here's Dara.
2: I was joined by Sean Murray, director of the 2018 film On Quiet Graves. Unquiet Graves is a feature-length documentary that focuses on the Glenann Gang. The Glenanne Gang was a coalition of loyalist paramilitaries and British security forces who, during the 1970s, murdered at least 120 civilians, largely between Armagh and Tyrone. During the interview, we make reference to the book Lethal Allies, which was written by journalist Anne Cadwalder. Lethal Allies is an important contribution to the knowledge of the Glenann Gang's activities, and as such... It informed the production of Unquiet Graves. We discussed former Minister of Justice Charlie Flanagan, who has denounced both Unquiet Graves and RTE's decision to broadcast it earlier this year. Here's Flanagan on News Talk some weeks ago.
15: Uh, and I've written to RTE, and uh, the programme was shown two weeks last night. Uh, it did attract some concern, but essentially I have three concerns as a public representative. Yeah. Firstly, Uh, I'm concerned that the makers of the program, the production team, uh, I don't believe they were objective, I don't believe they were fair-minded, I don't believe there was balance. Uh, Secondly, uh, I'm concerned that, that, that RTE actually showed the program or transmitted the program without what I felt was due diligence, and I want that question answered insofar as what background information or checks were undertaken by RTE in the form of due diligence?
2: Several times throughout this interview, we refer to the concept of truth and reconciliation. Truth and reconciliation is a formal process whereby a body is set up to reveal and discover wrongdoings by governments and or other non-state actors. Its purpose is to attempt to resolve residual elements of former conflicts. Most notably, the process was used in South Africa after the fall of the apartheid regime. We'll introduce the interview with a short clip from Unquiet Graves.
15: We had a meeting with the Chief Constable, the most senior police officer in the PSNI, accompanied by an assistant Chief Constable at their headquarters. And we asked them, what did they intend to do about the fact that a former police sergeant, William Mackay, had admitted publicly that he was also party to the plan to kill 30 children at a school and their teachers? There was a pause. They looked at each other and they told us that nothing had been done and there was no intention of doing anything. It wasn't to be re- He wasn't to be rearrested. It wasn't to be reinvestigated. Nothing would happen. And I think at that moment and after when we left the building, we talked about it and we realized that where else in Europe would a former police officer admit to a plan to kill a large number of children in a school? And his former employer would say that he had no plans to re-interview him as a result.
2: Had you, for some time, wanted to make a film based on Lethal Allies, or was was the book, was the book itself a kind of catalyst for for wanting to make the film?
10: Well, I think even before the book, I wanted to, I wanted to get, get involved in a production that detailed an overarching story of collusion. But I think that the uh, once I had read on Clooney's book, I think that was that was a springboard for for putting this all into action and getting the film that you know offered some kind of uh, overall look at, at, at collusion. And I, I think the Glennon series, for me, was one of the biggest that I had ever read about, you know?
2: The Glenang gang and their victims, that story felt particularly important for you? Yeah, I felt that,
10: you know, there were many instances of collusion, but I felt that the Glennon gang, even though it was about uh, a gang uh, that, the, the, you know that, that were involved in a gang of policemen, soldiers, and loyalist paramilitaries that were involved in killing civilians between 1972 and 1978. It didn't matter to me that that, that this was about, uh, you know, a, a particular a, a particular uh, period in time. I thought, you know, if I told this story about the Glenan, it was a story about collusion, and it could be identified to anyone who was who was. Uh, you know, victims of state collusion. Whether it was in the 1970s, in the 1980s, or the 1990s, right through. You know,
2: and how do you feel about the film's reception so far? Are there any plans to broadcast it in the UK on UK terrestrial television? Well,
10: I don't think I don't think we will we'll ever get the film shown on uh, you know terrestrial UK terrestrial television. I don't think that the BBC will go near the film, ITV or Channel Four for that matter. I think it was a very brave decision by our team to screen the film, but. Uh, I, I think it was well overdue that a film like this should have been aired on RT. Uh, after all, we're, we're talking about a gang who was involved in uh, the, the Dublin Manhattan bombings and, and, and other victims around Castelblaney and Dundalk in the 1970s etc. So this is something, although dealing with pollution in, in the north of Ireland, it was, it was also about those that were affected south of the border also, you know.
2: And do you think there are specific obstacles to having the film broadcast on, on UK television? Have you had discussions with production teams?
10: Well, I, I haven't, no, and I, I, I never, ever had it in my head while making the film, We, you know. Uh, how I look at, at, at contemporary history is, particularly coming from from where I come from in the north of Ireland, the, the dominant narrative has always been controlled by the broadcasters and the media. So as far as I was always concerned, the, the, the BBC or even RT in the south always done the bidding of the establishment. So I never had those broadcasters in mind. Whenever I was making the film, we were always to to you know for me it was always to bypass, that particularly with the proliferation now of digital and social media. So we wanted to get it into the cinemas and we wanted to get it internationally, you know through international streaming agencies. So the broadcasters it wasn't it wasn't important for me, but maybe maybe I, I underestimated that once the film was uh, was screened in RTE because obviously the reaction after that was was for me was historic.
2: The film does seem to have received quite a bit of acclaim, but it's also received a negative reaction from some high-profile commentators uh, who kind of resorted to personal attacks on you. Did you anticipate that reaction?
10: Well, it did, yes. I, I always did anticipate that because I think that, that, that for me to, to unpick the content within the film is always going to be very difficult because it's, it's, it's based on over 20 years of research for, from, uh, from a number of human uh, rights groups, Justice for the Forgotten in Dublin, the Pat Finucane Centre in Darien Belfast, Uh, but also it was part of my own PhD. So we we had this 20 years of research uh, along with my own four years of research in the PhD. So it it had a, besides the the, the initial research, it had a scholarly foundation. So I was always able to defend uh, what I was doing with this film from an academic point of view. So I was always sure going into these uh, battles post-production that I was well prepared for any of the criticism that was within the film, any of the content. But I think the personal uh, criticism that came afterwards, I, I thought that a lot of people uh, were, were quite ill informed and, 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 for me,
2: had shown me a, a, a lack of discipline. But most significantly, Charlie Flanagan, the former Minister of Justice, wrote to the Director of Programming at RTE to register his complaint that they had broadcast on Quiet Graves and he indicated that he was seeking formal explanation from rte he then went on to news talk to further denounce the film and to question the objectivity of the filmmakers Uh, to my mind for a senior political figure to make such an intervention against a single piece of media seems quite unprecedented in our recent history what was your reaction when you learned flanagan's intervention
10: to be quite honest i was surprised i'm not surprised that charlie flanagan felt that way not not at all but i'm very very surprised again by the lack of discipline Uh, i think it not only exposed uh, you know that the kind of establishment's thoughts on this type of work being shown by RTE, but it also exposed those dark relationships between certain journalists, certain unionist journalists in the north, because a lot of the things that Charlie Flanagan had said were almost copy and paste what had been said in the weeks before by uh, some unionist journalists and some quite extremist uh, unionist bloggers, etc. You know.
2: And I, I know we referenced there that he, he had written. Who's the director of
10: programming at RTE? Did you ever see that letter? I did. The, how, how I'd seen that letter was even more surprising. I'd seen that letter posted on social media by a, a, a blogger who would be a unionist. a unionist blogger, a former IRA man turned Christian, uh, who's quite a, quite an extremist blogger for that matter. And to see what what an essence should have been a private letter to RTE to see that on on, on social media by this uh, this particular blogger was very very surprising to me.
2: And it wasn't it wasn't an open letter, so somebody presumably leaked it.
10: Well, I, I I would be fairly sure that RT didn't leak that letter. That had to have came from you know someone else.
2: Uh, I mean, do you think that kind of resistance that we've seen uh, directed at unquiet graves is more broadly symptomatic of an unwillingness to acknowledge the full extent of collusion between loyalist paramilitaries and the British state?
10: Well, I think that the unquiet grace has shown that, I mean, for, for those, that, that those collusion deniers that are still out there, and I, I don't even think there really is collusion deniers, I, I think that what it is is that there's a fear of, of this, the change in the narrative and the conflict. And this is not only by unionism in the North, this is also by the establishment in the South. They, they don't want that dominant, dominant narrative to be overthrown because it suits the establishment in the, in the South to keep it contained. And, and it, it it's not just about the politics in the North. It's even, it, it, it's, it's even more prudent upon those in the South to keep this kind of stuff buried, because particularly when we have the growth of Sinn Féin in, in the South of Ireland, uh, a party who has always uh, been a proponent of, or not a proponent, sorry, who's always called for investigations into the collusion uh, in the North, both in the North and the South. And and if we take the Dublin and bombings, for example, which there, there there will have to be documents which the Irish government are are still withholding to to those families in the south that need to be uh, they they need they need to be brought to the fore. Those families need to know what the Dublin government knows about what happened in 1974 in Dublin and Malahin and Castleblaney and on etc. etc. So there's documents there which. Which the, the the establishment in the south of Ireland have that the families don't have, and this this of course upsets that whole narrative, and, and and begs the question: Why have these families been suffering over forty years in, in, in the south? You know,
2: truth and reconciliation is um, is obviously a very active element here, but there there seems to be um, perhaps an ancillary concern that you, you see kind of manifest in, in Harris's article where he says it was remiss of RT to show the documentary when Sinn Féin are at 50% in the polls from 18 and 34-year-olds. Do you think it's a, a case, too, of delegitimising Republican politics as it's making such an advance in the, the polls at the moment? Of course, it,
10: it absolutely is. That's the central of the letter of the criticism here. These are people who made a, a, a great living as journalists upholding The dominant narrative both in the north and the south and the fact that that's becoming increasingly unstable is i think causing this lack of discipline from a lot of these journalists and and and, and some of these politicians and i think it's uh, they know that the the good old days of uh, being able to propagate those fallacies is long gone now and that they cannot they cannot stop the, the, the flow of information that, that, that is out there at the minute and the, the increasing number of documents that are being released around collusion. And, and the truth is trickling and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's not going to stop now. And that either they get on board or the, 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 not only this generation, but the generations that follow, will, will certainly not uh, allow that, that, those, that, that old establishment to, to dictate the way they have been doing since partition.
2: I know truth and reconciliation, say, in, in South Africa was uh, a very different process, there were very different institutions that kind of um, maintained there. The
10: thing, the thing with the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa, it was never going to work in the North. If we look at what happened in, in the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, was that from the outset, the British government and Unionists didn't want a Truth and Reconciliation uh, yeah, Commission. They just did not want that. Uh, now the South African model wasn't perfect, but it was better than, than what we have now. If we're looking at, you know, 22 years later, we're still uh, not only not being able to deal with those issues that were raised in 1998, but actually they're getting worse because what has come to the fore now is the Battle of narratives. And, and, and what, what, what happened in 1988 was unions and the British government didn't want a truth commission because they did not want the narrative to be changed. What they, had, what they want the narrative to be is that it was a grubby old sectarian war Loyalists and Republicans were at each other's throats while the British tried to keep the peace. And now we see films like Unquiet Graves, uh, No Stone Unturned, The bellamy present, for example, are bypassing all that and and they're they're bypassing these broadcast protocols that that would have pumped out and upheld that status quo narrative, if if you'd like, and that people are seeing now for the first time that that that, that narrative doesn't hold anymore, that the British government were the main propagators in this conflict, they were agents, on both sides, the, the, the conflict could have long been over before uh, 1984. Uh, and what we're increasingly finding out is is that the, the role of the British government was disgusting during the conflict. It, it had its tentacles everywhere and it prolonged the war rather than in Ireland that said that they were upholding the peace.
2: Would you say part of your motivation in making Unquiet Graves was to try and build momentum for... A more substantive truth and reconciliation process
10: it's about setting the right court streets for families first of all to be quite truthful everything else comes second that this is very personal to me because i've had four members of my own extended family were killed by the british state. so i know what it it's first hand. this is this isn't just a filmmaker that's going out to make a piece of a piece of work that uh, the could be considered considered an activist piece of filmmaking this is something that's very dear to my heart so when i sit down with those families It's like looking into the eyes of my own family. So I I know it's very personal. So it's setting the record straight. It's setting the narrative straight. But for me, most of all, it's about telling our younger generation that we we don't need to go back to that past. This is the truth of what had happened. Uh, And we're not going to have any of those skeletons lay on the cupboard anymore. We're not going to allow that old old, old, uh, narrative to dictate my children's future. And we are going to leave a legacy for those that were killed. Because if we leave it to the broadcasters, if we leave it to the dominant narrative, our loved ones will be forgotten. And there's not a chance that we will ever let our loved ones be forgotten.
2: Do you think the architecture of Good Friday hinders the possibility of meaningful truth and reconciliation? Look, The Good Friday Agreement isn't perfect, but it's the
10: best thing we're going to get. It's the best we'll get, honestly. Honestly. Uh, there are a lot of elements that I was never happy with in the Good Friday Agreement. I was younger, uh, but when I look back now, I don't. The, the, we we won't get better than what's there in the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, it's it's a settlement which I think allows everyone to 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 look to take a step back and look in, in, into the eyes of each other and say, you know, something. There is no monopoly on victimhood. There's no monopoly on hurt. We have hurt each other as communities, and we need the healing process to start. And I know the British government won't become part of that process when it comes to my own community. So what I'm saying to the British government as a filmmaker is, I don't care anymore. We're going to set the record straight when it comes to state collusion. And you can hide the documents. You can have these asbestos fire accidents. You can have these documents gone missing still, but the truth will will, will, uh, eventually be out there.
2: Regarding the families of those who were murdered by the Glenad gang, and their quest for justice. They had sought an overarching thematic report on collusion from the PSNI. A court in the North had compelled the PSNI to produce this comprehensive report, which then saw the hierarchy of the PSNI appeal the court's decision and attempt to delay any such report. At the time, the hierarchy of the PSNI was George Hamilton and Drew Harris. Drew Harris was then deputy constable. How did the victims' families perceive the hierarchy of the PSNI after they had appealed the court's decision? Well, if, if, if you take it from the family's point of view, you know,
10: there are two avenues towards getting some sense, semblance of justice, and it's through the criminal justice system. And if they can't get it through the criminal justice system, it's through filmmakers like myself getting that information out there, being able to uh, create a legacy for their loved ones and make sure their loved ones aren't forgotten. So if we look at the criminal justice system, when we have a, a police service that should have investigated those killings uh, over 40 years ago and in and, and some of those instances, still to this day uh, obstructing and obfuscating uh, the path to justice for these families, of course they're not happy. And, and what it says to them is, you know, can we consider... After everything that's happened, can we consider the PSNI to be any different from the RUC men who were involved in our loved ones' killings? I, I can understand that when, when, when I hear family members saying that. So, you know, 40 odd years later, we're still seeing this obfuscation, this, these, these obstacles being put in the way of the families, and at every rate, they'll be angry. I, I would be very, very angry myself.
2: And do you feel victims' families felt that George Hamilton and, and Drew Harris were obstacles for meaningful transparency?
10: Well, it's n- not just Drew Harris. you know, of you, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the leading members of the police force who were involved in, in, in denying that overarching report. The families weren't happy with them, of course, you know, because, as, as I had said, we're, we're dealing with, in some instances, this being been over 40 years later. Uh, and the information is still being hidden from the families. So, yeah. So I don't think it's so much just about uh, Drew Harris. It's about you know uh, all those who who were involved in the leadership of the, the PSNI and 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 denying uh, the right of those families that have that information and completing that overarching report. You know,
2: the last question I would ask about anything to do with Drew Harris is. You know, of course, it was under Charlie Flanagan's tenure as a minister which saw Harris get appointed as Guard Commissioner with the nominal purpose of overseeing a transition to a kind of so-called transparent policing culture. Do you think that in part might explain Flanagan's hostility to your film?
10: Well, well I'm sure it is. I think Charlie Flanagan uh, was sad to the appointment of Julie of, Horace. And I, I don't know, you know, I think w- when we'd seen Charlie Flanagan's reaction to the film, it exposed uh, Charlie Flanagan's relationship to to those unions that I mentioned earlier on because a lot of what Charlie Flanagan was said was verbatim or, or almost copy and paste from a lot of these extremes bloggers were saying in, in, in the days beforehand so uh, you know I don't like saying too much about it because uh, you know it's, it's, it's not for me to say but let, let me say this when I'd heard that the Drew Horace was appointed to, uh, to the Garda commissioner uh, appointment it was. It, it, it took me back. I was very, very surprised, and even now, I I don't understand the rationale behind it, because when when we're when we're looking at those families that were that were killed uh, in the Dublin Malahan bombings and Blaney and Dundalk etc., I think where's the rationale in Ireland appointing someone who was a member of the PSN in North, into the Garda com, uh, Commissioner post.
2: Finally, are you working on anything else at the moment? Well, I'm also, we're, all, we're
10: already working on the, on the pre-production to this to the follow-up film to Unquiet Graves.
2: Oh, great, I didn't realise.
10: Yeah, yeah, uh, and I've just finished, uh, well, we're in the edit at the minute of the Killing Kelly documentary which looks at the death of Dr. David Kelly, the chemical weapon expert that was found under suspicious circumstances uh, in the aftermath of the Iraq war, so that's going to be pretty controversial also in Britain, you know, so yeah, I, I don't I don't steer away from too much controversy when it comes to making documentaries. movies.
2: That sounds great. Looking forward to seeing them.
10: I think I think the film has, has opened a lot of eyes in, in the south of Ireland. You know, the very fact that obviously you, you were looking to, to interview me is an indication of that and, and just the reaction in the south by the, the, the public. I think that's, yeah. what really upset, that's what really upset the legs of Charlie Flanagan was the huge reaction to the public. the film. You know?
2: Thanks a minute, Sean. I'm looking forward to seeing your, your work in the future and uh, hopefully we can have you on again to discuss it. Stuff, Thanks everyone.
0: That segment was hosted and edited by Dara Deegan-Gregory with editing assistance by Patrick McCusker. That's it for this issue of Nervous State. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Nervous Underscore State. We've been Patrick McCusker, LaHala Jones, Shan Cowman, Martin Lean, Katrina Devry, Sean Finon, Dara Deegan-Gregory, I've been your host, Tommy Gavin. Sound production was by Frank Sweeney. Support Dublin Digital Radio at patreon.com forward slash Dublin Digital Radio. Be safe, be well, look after yourselves. We'll see you on the other side. Goodbye.